Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all of our LARB readers. My name is Eric Newman, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm unfortunately alone in the studio today, while my co-host Medea Ocher is traveling in New York, and Kate Wolf is working on the performance art that we are calling her darling newborn boy. But nonetheless, we shall persist, and I have a wonderful show for all of you listeners. We're going to be talking with Natalie J. Graham, author of the recently published poetry collection Begin with a Failed Body. Graham is an associate professor of African American Studies at California State University Fullerton. Medea Ocher, our managing editor, joined me in the studio for our conversation with Natalie Graham, and it was a wonderful and wide-ranging conversation that covered everything from how Graham writes her poetry, how she got up the courage to submit her poetry and eventually win a prize for it, and of course the long-ranging history of African-American literature and experience that infuses and suffuses the poetry in this collection. So let's get to it. Natalie J. Graham is a writer and assistant professor of African-American studies at California State Fullerton. She received an MFA in creative writing from the University of Florida and a PhD in American studies from Michigan State University. Her poems and essays have been featured in the academic quarterly Kalaloo, New England Review, Valley Voices, a literary review, and Southern Humanities Review. Her newest book of poems, Began with a Failed Body, was published this year by the University of Georgia Press and received the Cave Canem Poetry Prize. Thanks for joining us, Natalie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming, Natalie. Would you mind reading one of your poems for us? Not at all. Sure. The Way of the Shrine, after Juan Delgado. The imprint of his mother's body on the hospital bed is a doorway. So vivid, then gone, he says of her memory, of her forgetting, first being a teacher, then being, then gone an imprint. He sees them everywhere. Two tomato slices on the almost empty plate, wobbly highlighting in a book of Psalms, the places her hands might have been. He never said her body was a doorway. He said that shadow is an imprint of the body. I don't remember my mother polishing her nails, though I was old enough to make memories. Before the wake, my aunt says, Make sure her lipstick is red. I think she liked pink. I recall the smell of her face powder. I think I saw one of her fake eyelashes on the dresser, the dresser with one door broken off. And wasn't the other door half hinged and one of the drawers inside also broken and the brown curtains never quite shut and the light coming through them slanting through dust and the walls stained? We become terrain, first a body, then a shrine, then a road marker, furnishing a crowded landscape. Thank you so much. That's really beautiful. You're welcome. Can you start by just explaining to us the title of the collection, Begin with a Failed Body, right? What is a failed body and whose body is it? Really, I think the title comes from this idea that I've had for a long time and really kind of started in my MFA process to begin everything with failure. I say, okay, I got to get the failure out of the way so that I can just move forward. Mm -hmm. And so there's also this idea that I think just growing up and even just throughout life, there's this idea that your body and your everything is the failure from the ideal. 
And so I'm always trying to like reach this ideal, but inevitably it's always some failure. Like you never quite make it. But then also I was thinking a lot about this idea of a failure is truly being the essence of humanity, right? Yeah, so yeah. to be human is to be a failure, right? Statue is perfect, but the human, you know, is a failed, you know, model of that. And so I think that those are some of the ideas that I really felt you know, and going back and reading through the collection, they also seem to resonate with the idea of body and like the idea of history, sort of also a failed history. Sort of we exist within that space too. Great. And within that understanding of failure, do you have measures of success? Does success exist within this the system? Yes. I mean, I think persistence, right, is the like success, right? To endure and to find some joy, like some measure of joy, like kind of in that system, I mm -hmm. think is success. That seems like such a, in many ways, a productive way of understanding the world and moving through the world because as difficult as persistence might be, maybe the initial difficulty is always to just begin mm -hmm. at a point and go forward in some right. capacity. Yes. Can you also talk about kind of what your process is? I mean, how long were you working? For readers that when you read the collection, it will become one of many things that will become very clear to you is how thoroughly worked these poems mm -hmm. are. I mean, these are highly crafted, very precise poems. And I imagine they must have taken a very long time to produce. Well, I think that it's interesting because I got my MFA in 2004. 2005. So it's been um, a minute. Yeah. yeah. And so I would say at least half of the poems came out of that process or were started during that period. So okay. I've been working through probably, I would say, a good bulk of the collection for at least like 10 years, kind of like, you know, sharpening and shaping and writing, you know, one here and there along the way. What is it like for you to return to poems that you've written years ago mm. with that kind of now more editorial eye, right? Thinking about gathering them together for a collection. I think I rely a lot more on readers or on like, you know, a trusted, you know, friend to kind of read this and like, look at this. Is this, what does this sound like to you? Okay. What are you getting from that? Because I do feel often so removed from the initial mm -hmm. sort of emotional core mm -hmm. of the poem or right. like what was a lot of these poems kind of take place in like location. It's like a meditation on a space. It's an actual mm -hmm. place I've been. And, and so I think that that process starts to fade over time. And so I think I rely a little more in the editorial process on readers. And do you have a trusted sort of group of readers in LA or are they sort of all over? Are they family, friends? I think mostly friends. I have a couple of people here who are generous enough to look at my work in various ways. And then a couple of friends across the country. One of the things that I would really like to talk about is the relationship to history that circulates through a lot of these poems. And some of the poems, that history is the long durée of Black struggle in America the way that slavery, for example, continues to haunt us in the present. In others, it's a recuperation of the people who simply get forgotten or are misremembered, right? So the girl who isn't the best daughter in one of your poems, mm -hmm. the dead uncle who wouldn't have liked the polish and shine of his funeral, right, which I really enjoyed. So how does history function in these poems? And what does history mean to you as a poet, as both like a material resource, but also as something that you're actively in dialogue with? I think the word that you said, haunting, is exactly kind of how I engage with history, because I do feel so haunted by, you know, historical trauma, 
right? And so right. I think very often there are certain things that trigger these moments of connecting to a history. Like I tell people, I was in a discussion about police violence and brutality. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, you know, we kind of mentioned is like, I'm not quite over Emmett Till yet. Like I'm not done with that, you know, as mm-hmm. far as like an emotional, there's a trigger there. And so I think also um, there are all these moments that I feel just emotionally moved by these moments in history to kind of understand how is this possible? How is this and also so present, right? It right. feels so right. present. Yeah, that's right? what I was going to so say about they, the Emmett Till. It's like you're triggered by something that happened in the past that's a horrible narrative to read about, right? Because we're disconnected from it. Sure. But we also recognize that it is happening again and again and again mm-hmm. and again in our present. Sure. Yeah, and so I think that's how I see, I engage with history. I mean, I just see all of these moments where you have these hauntings and resonances that are still so like active, And how does that haunting feel? Like you say that a lot of these emotions are what prompt the words to Mm -hmm. come out. And I see you making, our (laughs) listeners can't see it. No, but I think it's a telling gesture that you're making, which is sort of almost like you're clutching your fist at your stomach and then as if you're releasing something at your chest. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it looks like to listeners who obviously can't see this gesture. What is the emotion that you, have you identified what it might be? What is Mm -hmm. the emotion of the haunting? I think it's, I don't know if this is an emotion, but I think there's just an initial like curiosity and wonder. Like I genuinely want to understand people, Mm -hmm. what their lives were like, how they sort of moved about in the world. And I think part of my, a lot of, as I go through history, it's kind of, I often kind of look at like these villainous figures and think about like, how, who are you to be you know, this person. And that's, I think, I guess that's kind of a driving curiosity and interest and also a desire, I think, to memorialize. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what emotion would describe that, but I, I have a deep desire to memorialize and have people sort of remember with love certain, you know, figures and moments who could easily kind of fall out of, I mean, so quickly of cultural memory. That's a um, difficult combination to embody this both a feeling of curiosity and desire to memorialize Mm -hmm. do you find yourself i mean it's obviously led to work but do you find yourself exhausted by it at all oh that's a good question exhaustion yeah i think it's a tiresome sort of life (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) I, i imagine everyone is exhausted like most of the time i feel like yeah, I do think there's a certain sort of like being exhausted and, but also you're still sort of in this, mm-hmm. like, so you're driven by this need. But right. yeah, I do think that there are certainly moments of like exhaustion. And yeah, I mean, it makes well, sense considering what, well, the rest of the population doesn't necessarily maybe like you or like a poet place yourself in that position, right? Mm-hmm. Over and over and over in order to do the thing you need to do. Yeah. So it does seem like a little different, (laughs) at least in terms of your level of engagement with. I think there's also something like deeply, I guess, like on the balance, there's something Mm -hmm. deeply rewarding in being understood. Right. So that like, for instance, like that somebody also can feel that trigger and like never sort of look at a certain object again in the same way. I think that there's something sort of rewarding and 
gratifying and I, I don't know, maybe motivating, maybe sort of giving a sort of peace mm-hmm. also about being understood, being right. heard, you know, being sort of making those connections. Do you think that there's a particular capacity that poetry has to tell certain kinds of stories or to memorialize certain kinds of experiences? So one of the things that I was thinking about is there's the poem that you have that is dedicated to Zong, right? Mm-hmm. Is about the Zong slave ship massacre mm-hmm. and drowning. And I was reminded, of course, of that your poem calls to mind not only the horrific story of the Zong slave ship, but also M. Norbezi Phillips' incredible poem, Zong. And it's written as a memorial testament to those dead. And I'm wondering, is poetry one of the only forms, this is something I was wondering as I was reading it, that can actually memorialize such an otherwise unfathomable event such as that? And I say unfathomable not to say that we can't imagine it, but it's the totality of what happened. That I wonder if poetry has a particular facility to bring forward to us. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe there's something about the density of language and like the slowness of it that it Mm. kind of calls forth. I mean, obviously not all poetry, but I sort of imagine poetry in that way. But I also I also think that that quality is found in the best of our you know novels as well. Okay, and so maybe it's particular to poems that close focus and unraveling and that sort of meditation that maybe memorializing requires a detachment or a meditation in that way. But I'm not sure. I mean, it's a good question because I think there's so many different mediums that are arresting and can do that work. You're also a professor and you teach. How does your scholarship fit into your writing and your life as a poet? It's interesting because I think that they sort of feed each other in different ways. Mm -hmm. I often, I love doing workshops, poetry workshops with my students, even though I don't actually teach in the English department. I don't teach poetry. But one of the things that I've recommitted to and I'm always interested in is making poetry part of whatever the course topic is. Mm. And so that students understand that poetry is just a way of thinking through or adapting to some idea. So we might look at, for instance, Honoré Jeffers has a book called The Gospel of Barbecue, mm-hmm. right? And I'm teaching this African-American food culture class. And so we talk about how poems sort of engage with food and the interrelationship of culinary arts and literary arts as a way to just explain and understand the world. So I think poetry gives me an opportunity also for students to create a different sort of response to work. They're not used to being called upon to write poems or read them. Right. Like they, most of my students haven't read or written a poem since elementary school. It's just so, you know, it's very not common. So I enjoy like trying to introduce them to poetry, especially if it's not something they're familiar with. Wait, tell me exactly what your class was again. So I teach African-American food culture. Oh. Yeah. And what brought you to that? Uh, That's kind of... I mean, delicious food. Yeah. I mean, I think that... I read a cookbook by Bryant Terry called Afro-Vegan. And I also kind of read here and there books about, and there's another one called Sister Vegan, and a couple of different artists who were interested in vegan lifestyles. I actually, my dissertation was on masculinity and hip hop. And so I do a lot. Mm. That's my like primary research focus. And there are a lot of hip hop artists who are like connecting in interesting ways, like masculinity and, you know, vegetarian or vegan lifestyles to like kind of 
nullify sort of this femininity attached to, you know, being vegetarian or being vegan or being a gardener, all of these things. Like, I mean, Ron Finley is a really easy, you know, Mm. close example. Like he talks about being the gangster gardener, like, and kind of shoves (laughs) off any sort of, you know, negative or feminizing quality of that. And so I was really interested, I think, through those threads and it was kind of tying together those. And also I was interested in really kind of having, giving students an option Mm -hmm. because they don't really think about a vegan lifestyle or vegetarian lifestyle as an option, right? So my family doesn't, you know, it's so thinking about like, hey, this is another way to eat and to live. You are listening to the LARP Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We'll return to our interview with Natalie Graham, author of A Failed Body, in just a moment. But for now, this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Boris Draliuk, executive editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books, with us in the studio today for this week's book recommendation. Hi, Boris. Hi, Eric. So what book do you have for us this week? Well, we're nearing the uh, centenary of the October Revolution, 1917 to 2017. There are any number of books that have been released in the past year that commemorate that revolution, analyze it, provide new perspectives. I'd like to recommend one that uh, may have slipped past some radars called the Russian Emigre Short Stories from Bunyan to Yanovsky. It's an anthology with Penguin Books, Penguin Classics, edited and uh, translated by Brian Koretnik. Brilliantly translated, I would say. He's also included translations by some other translators, but it's mostly his work. Mm. And it does provide an interesting take on the revolution in that we don't uh, too often think of the consequences of uh, of the revolution in terms of the people cast adrift by those events. And this is a book of writing by Russians who found themselves without a homeland after uh, the events of 1917 to 1921. Some of the names are very well known, uh, Nabokov, Ivan Bunyan, a Nobel laureate. Uh, some are much less well-known, but deserve to be better known. Uh, and I think Brian has made a, a, a truly wonderful selection uh, that should be read and will, will give us uh, some sense of, of uh, the revolution's consequences, not only for the Soviet Union, but also for other Russians. That sounds fantastic. Is there any particular standout story that you particularly enjoyed? Well, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I did translate two of the stories. <laughs> uh, so, But they are not my favorite in the book. Uh, there is one brilliant author. First of all, of, of course, I can recommend the book of stories, A mm-hmm. Visit to the Museum especially. But there is a brilliant author named Mark Aldanov, who writes a story, an unexpected story, about an astrologer. And uh, I think that it's worth the price of the book alone. What is Aldanov's background? Uh, Mark Aldanov was one of the older generation of Russian emigres of that period, the first wave of Russian emigration, which saw about 2 million to 3 million people sweep across the borders of what used to be the Russian Empire into Europe. That first wave of immigration is split into two generations. There were two generations of writers. Some of them had established their careers to some extent in Russia, and others could only establish their careers after immigration. They were children or adolescents. That generation, that second generation, included Nabokov, who uh, really didn't publish anything of of significance before emigration, uh, really established his career abroad. But it also included uh, authors like Georgi Ivanov, a great poet that I very much admire, who uh, contributes two stories to this volume. One of them is a novella-length piece of existential fiction called The Atom Explodes. Another one is a a short story of espionage and intrigue and a bohemian life. 
from the last days of the Russian Empire. That one I translated and had a lot of fun doing. That sounds yeah. great. Can you give us the title and the editor of this collection, please? Absolutely. It's Russian Emigre Short Stories from Bunyan to Yanovsky, edited and translated for the most part by Brian Koretnik. Thank you so much for coming to the studio today, Boris. Thank you. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, and now we return to our interview with Natalie Graham, author of Begin with a Failed Body. Can you also talk about what advice would you give to young poets, right? So you're somebody who is obviously after the Cave Canem Prize, very like august, respected for your work. Your work is incredible, but you've also been working on this for a long time. So kind of what would you tell a young poet just kind of like starting out today, somebody in an MFA program like yourself about 10 years ago? I would tell them to keep reading and writing. I mean, I guess that's sort of basic, right? <laughs> but I do think that there is something... I think just for myself, I can certainly speak to the idea that before you have a book, you never conceive of the possibility of actually having a book. So there's like all of these moments, you know, in the last 10 years where I'm like, I'm done with poetry. Like, it's okay. I'm just going to focus on this. I'm going to do the academic stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. PhD is my fallback plan. You know, I'm going to do that. And I think there's a reward when you're continually just doing that practice of reading and writing. Mm. And so it becomes, it takes on its own life and becomes its own sort of living space. And and to have that space is valuable, right? And so I think that um, it's also, it also kind of protects you, I guess, from whether or not you get this prize or whether or not you are able to get published to continue to consider the poems and the work. I mean, I guess reading is really what expands your capacity. Do you see a connection between your academic work and your creative work? Right? Like, how are those in dialogue with one another? Mm, I think the crossover, the main crossover is really the love of skillfully worked language. Like, I think mm. that there's a, there's a love of language that sort of uh, draws me to hip-hop and rap music and has always sort of kept my interest you know i'm really interested in the ways that the genius of of rap really you mm. know and knowing sort of the difficulty of making these arresting turns of language mm-hmm. right so that there's a real crossover there for me uh, as far as like going through um the work and sort of listening over and over again to a certain artist and writing about you know his or her work i would say that's probably the main crossover outside of my teaching is there an artist that you've written about or that you've, you're listening to right now and thinking about writing about? Yeah. Well, Kendrick Lamar seems like pretty obvious. Yes. I guess. Yeah. It's like an easy, it's um, who's not writing about Kendrick Lamar? Um, <laughs> I have an article that just came out of transition mm. that's about Kendrick Lamar and thinking about the roots anniversary and mm-hmm. the way Kendrick um, uses the, the image of slave kind of overlaid against the image of king, right? So Kunta Kinte is like the slave king. Um, And so I'm interested in those sort of mashups in his work. My dissertation was about Lil Wayne kind of focusing a lot on his work. And so I'm returning to that a little bit now and thinking about uh, the prospect of writing an article about um, Southern rappers in particular and kind of focusing on him and his representation of New Orleans. Hmm. And what do you think is the difference, if you see one, between 
or a distinction between Southern rappers and someone like Kendrick? Oh. Or, I mean, their work is sounds different. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there would be sort of a regional distinction in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, when I think of, like, rap in California and really, like, Black people in California and in and, and L.A., I think a lot, they strike me as very Southern, right? So I, like think about, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, there's this migration that was straight out of the South, but also... Which is uh, also a migration we don't tend to talk about a lot. <laughs> we mostly think about the movement kind of north to New York and New England, and we don't think about that whole other west. transition west. Yeah, Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that, that that's probably one of the distinctions that, that maybe I don't make as um, solidly, but mm-hmm. I think on the, on the whole, like, Generally, Southern music is probably more interested in dancing and like the communal space of dance. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the repetition, a lot of the sort of things that would be kind of discounted by, you know, West Coast or Northern rap as being um, sort of bubblegum rap or sort of, you know, just not serious has a lot to do with that sort of the repetition, the sort of call, the like kind of religious call to to the dance floor. I mean, it strikes me also bounce music is kind of that way, right? In terms of like a repeated refrain, high intensity and Mm -hmm. very focused on audience participation. Absolutely. Yeah. And space, right? So bounce music is also like Magnolia, you know, calling out the spaces of, you know, and again, like this memorializing, right? So I think a lot of Southern really arts production kind of has this has these connections, right? Because that, to me, seems like the gospel revival, right? That mm. bounce, repetition, yeah. like um, that call and response and, you know, kind of making sure everybody in the crowd is represented as well. I was particularly struck by a moment in one of the poems called Raised for Testing, which is about, I believe it's about a, a guy who's raising a bunch of rabbits, basically, mm-hmm. to be tested. And they are, they exist in this, the images that you use are so great. They're like towering kind of steel cages, and you hear this rattling. And there's one line that you use where it says, in the rows of steel cages, hundreds of rabbits thump soundlessly, soundless except for the thumping, which mm-hmm. then made me think about... In several of the poems, there's a way in which you are memorializing or drawing our attention to a kind of injustice, quotidian or long historical, right? So kind of macro or micro injustice. Mm -hmm. And then also kind of calling attention to the fact that we don't really pay attention to it. We may acknowledge that it's there, but we don't do anything with it. Right. So that it's like, here are these rabbits who are soundless to us, except for the fact that they are thumping, right? right. We're, so it's almost the soundlessness is that we aren't paying attention to the thumping and what that thumping signifies. Right. When you were talking, I was drawn back to this this idea of my um, my mother had MS for 25 years, and it seems mm-hmm. unrelated, but I'll bring it back. And we never called it that, right? And so this idea okay. of like never speaking about a certain trauma to like give it life, right? Right. So you can't speak about it. And so, and also how that for me is very tied to what you remember, like how, how you can actually kind of seal off certain memories by the, the language you use to talk about them, right? Or um, sort of create a different possibility for you based on the language that you use to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is a certain way that this, you know, trauma sort of embedded in this history, the rabbit farmers, you know, my grandfather. And so like the memory of being there. And then I'm also, I think a lot of also my childhood memories are so um, hazy. So I'm like, wait, did that actually happen? Mm. Like what? And so, and especially when someone tells you, oh, this is what happened. You're like, wait, no, that's 
not what I remember. That's not, right, is I it just that memory, you yeah. are creating something that maybe didn't happen? And so I think that that's also what's happening there. That idea of, of, of even the possibility of, of memory. Like how do we, is that even really possible? Or is it always this like imaginary, you know, future that we're sort of creating at the same time? Well, maybe what you're also suggesting is that there is a communal function to memory. Okay, that sounds obvious that there's a communal function to memory. But what I more mean is that, that the memory is a call and response between what you remember and what someone else tells you about the event. And that somewhere in between those two things, like vibrating between those two poles is what actually happened, like what the memory, the real actually was. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, also, I think in addition to that, I I love that as a reading, in addition to that, how do you reconcile this deep feeling of like your truth, right? Mm, Like, at what point are you, do you say, no, I'm actually not going to lean in any direction towards this other communal articulation of space? Because that's also what you have to Right, we're doing that sort of every day just to be a person, right? To be right, unique, right, to be right. singular. You yes. sort of have to always sort of push a little bit away from that. I'm not part of the group. I'm not I'm that. My I'm own actually special different, thing. Yeah. right? Is there a force um, that you identify in particular that you feel sort of trying to push you in? I mean, sometimes I think if we are thinking about a family, there will be, let's say, my grandmother's a real storyteller. Okay. You cannot trust a... She's not listening. Even if, she, even if she is, she doesn't speak English, so it's fine. But you cannot trust a word that woman says because she's mm-hmm. consistently remaking the story, rewriting it. One day, it's very different from what she says on another. But it's also really tempting because mm-hmm. they're they're compelling. Right. You know, and she makes them better as she goes. But sometimes I feel like she sets herself up as a kind of pole, a magnetic pole, and you can go in that direction if you want, or you can sort of stick to the real thing, which is much more, which is different. Mm -hmm. And and it is a way of asserting your own identity within the narrative. But do you feel like there is a force that you can identify that you are resisting and that there is something or someone where you go, you know what, actually, I'm sticking with my memory of this or my version of what actually happened. Gosh, this is getting heavy. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think the first thing I actually thought of as you were talking is this idea of, I mean, it seems the self is just as damaging, sort of like confining as, Mm -hmm. as any other, you know, image. And so I think that, I mean, I'm always sort of resisting that negative, you know, voice also, but I think there are lots of scripts that are all mm-hmm. sort of at play and woven together. And so I think that it's not like necessarily one thing, but certainly like this community of, I mean, whether it's the academy and how you sort of behave and, you know, what's professorial, what is, what's allowed, what's going to allow you to be, to move forward versus what resonates with you as like an honest portrayal. I think that it's difficult for me to sort of pinpoint one, but certainly they're kind of moving constantly. Constantly, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
so maybe not to move from heavy to also heavy. Um, <laughs> but I was particularly struck also by the poem that you wrote called River Water, which you note is written in honor of Beloved, mm-hmm. um, which is both the name of the child that haunts uh, Setha in and is the title of um, Toni Morrison's very famous 1987 novel, um, Beloved. One of the things that also that you offer here, I think, is a different perspective on the character, offering us a, a way of thinking about what that child whose life was cut so tragically short wants, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you say she wants is, um, and this is from the poem, she wants out outside of the wanting mostly, right? Mm-hmm. So what does that, a desire to kind of not desire mean in that? And can you just talk in general about the poem? I think generally when I when I think about, there's actually a couple of poems that talk about, you know, desire and kind of use the figure of desire. And I think that I was another one of those things, like in addition to the concept of failure, I think of part of humanity is like desire, right? So you either, you decide to, you are like moving through and, and desiring these things without necessarily having the control over that. And I think part of Um, What I see in that poem is her wanting or looking for a rest that's like requires a sort of rejection of that desire because the desire is what's moving her, you know, or bringing her back, right? Right, The desire to, you know, connect or to articulate, tell her story or to be seen. Um, And I think that that's sort of a, sort of a human experience, like the desire that wanting to be seen, heard, and remembered, right? Right. And there is, you're right, that through throughout the rest of the collection, there are a number of times in which the the poems express a desire for the cessation of a kind of desire. Like mm-hmm. a, one of the lines from the earliest poem in the collection, I think, is um, to like feed me until I should want no more or mm-hmm. something. I'm paraphrasing that line. Yeah. In a sense, like that's the double bind of desire, right? Mm-hmm. Desire is the thing that propels us through the world, but also which kind of can make us crazy, right? Right, And yeah. and lead us into all kinds of bad things, right? Desire can lead you in the purest form. Desire can lead you to a kind of love that is, I believe, liberating, mm-hmm. but it can also lead you to jealousy, envy, right? All the things that are like love inverted and turned into a kind of hatred. Right. Yeah. I particularly, I think that's a very resonant feeling for me. The mm-hmm. idea of like the want, like this idea of like wanting, wanting, wanting. Yes. And so I'm there I think too. Yeah. That, that is like, it's just, I'm so interested when I see other people sort of, you know, measured and like, no, I'll just have one cookie. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, really? How do you live that life? Um, so I'm really interested in that as like a, a way that we sort of engage so differently, right? With each other. And like exactly what you're saying, this idea yeah. of it can lead to this fulfilling connection. Um, it can also lead to this crazy making where you just can't find that rest. Yeah. And then uh, just one final thing on that poem, uh, River Water, is just at the very end, it seems like you maybe offer some kind of hope for Beloved's body, but also for bodies in general, right? So you write, she can't stay hurt. The body doesn't hold hurt like that. The body saves us, even as we are dying from the last futile pain. Finally, wonder. Wonder remains. Mm. Right. So what do you mean? And is that, am I reading that right, that that is a redemptive moment or a kind of a salvation in a sense? Yeah, I mean, I think it's me sort of thinking about like the end of whatever the pain is, right? So this idea of like whether it's the desire or death really and sort of mm. thinking of like that is not being this like 
the most awful, you know, moment. Like there's perhaps something after that allows us to still maintain like this kind of hopeful movement forward. And so every sort of break in our lives doesn't have to be a a fearful, you know, Mm -hmm. um, we don't have to approach any like break with fear. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you. It really has. Congratulations on the book. Congratulations on the prize. Do we know when the book will be available in stores? Yes. um, September 15th. Okay. Okay. So look out for that. We've been speaking with Natalie J. Graham, author of the new collection, Begin with a Failed Body from University of Georgia Press and winner of the Kaveh Kanem Poetry Prize. Thank you. Thanks, Natalie. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 